With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell show for Thursday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll on. Almost a Valentine's Day, almost a President's Day. Got a week to go to the Super Bowl. Lots of exciting things going on, and we're glad that you decided to take a little time, the most valuable thing you have, and give it to us. And we're going to load it up with good information, turning down the noise of the news cycle right here on Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for being here, wherever you are, across the street or around the world. A couple different things we're going to cover today. Uh, There's a story out of reason of a mother who got cuffed and stuffed and charged for having her 14-year-old watch her other children. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Peter Thiel, all over media, getting involved in the midterm election, spending a lot of money, resigning from the Facebook board. People think this is a precursor to him becoming even more politically active. How do we do that? How do we deal with it? What's the coverage of it? I'm going to turn down the noise and get to some information on the new boogeyman on the right and how the right-left paradigm doesn't really apply to him and we shouldn't look at him in those terms. Deal with that in just a minute. Also on the program today, uh, Jim Swift has written a piece over in the Bulwark about congressional staffers. And you know what we like to do here on Hertel? We don't just want to react to the news. We don't want to just figure out what's going on. We want to know why it's going on. So since we spend a lot of time bashing Congress, rightfully so, We should also understand how Congress works. And there's some real machinations and things going on behind the scenes in Congress when it comes to the staffing levels and the staffers. And the staffers have a tremendous influence on how our Congress critters go about their business. So Jim Swift wrote a piece about it. He's going to be here to talk about it. He's also a former congressional and Senate staffer, so he knows of what he speaks. He'll talk about how things are different, how technology has changed it and how a problem that we see in things like higher education and journalism of the younger folks being kind of squeezed out by bad pay and only richer students and only people who have financial means to be in intern positions and things like this are squeezing out minorities or squeezing out people that are not of the upper classes, how that's bad for everybody and some solutions to fix it. So Jim Swift on the program in just a little bit. But first, I want to start with something that's been Uh, something I've written about quite a bit over the years, something I tweet about constantly the last few years. Let's talk performative patriotism. Now, we don't do a whole lot of somebody said something on the internet and we react to it stuff here, but every now and once in a while, we do so. And that happened uh, in this case. Uh, What happened was in West Virginia, there's a bill that has been introduced in the West Virginia legislature Uh, I'm going to read this quickly from WDTV Channel 5, uh, the pride of Bridgeport, West Virginia, home of the Meadowbrook Mall. If passed, reading from the article, this was written by the news staff, it's not credited. If passed, Senate Bill 495 would require high school seniors to pledge an oath to the Constitution as a condition of graduation. The bill's introduction says that all seniors graduating high school, quote, shall pledge to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America as a condition of graduation. The oath would be given on the day of graduation. Any student that is unable to attend the graduation day would take the pledge 
to on a date five days before or five days following the graduation date to satisfy the condition. SB 495's lead sponsor is Michael Azinger, Republican out of Wood County, uh, Legislative District 3. For those of you scoring at home, the bill has been referred to the Education Committee, by the way, which is where it's going to die, rightfully. Uh, and you can view the bill here. We will link it. Um, that's the backstory. This bill is going nowhere, by the way. This is a pose. This is performative. It's not going to pass. If it did pass, it would last in court about 35 seconds. It is blatantly unconstitutional. It offends all sorts of rights like free speech and other things. Uh, this is a horrible idea. It's a pose. Shame on Azinger for even bringing it up. Shame on the people seal clapping it. I hate stuff like this. I hate performative patriotism. Anyway, we were kicking this around on the twitter.com as we are wont to do. And an individual named Josh Hammer, he is the opinion editor for Newsweek now. He is an attorney in his own right. He's a right-wing commentator, works with places like the Claremont Institute and other things. He has gone more and more to the right as he has gone along. That's his right. Good for him. Glad it's working out for him. But he took a tweet about this that mentioned that this bill would be unconstitutional and tweeted out that West Virginia v. Barnett was wrongfully decided. Now, why did he do that? Well, a couple things. One is we're talking about West Virginia. West Virginia v. Barnett is the Supreme Court case that has been the standard since the 40s that you cannot make children in classrooms say the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, Josh is a lawyer. Uh, I think that he knows good and well what he's doing here. I think this is a bit of a troll, but he may really believe it. So let's take him on face. Barnett was wrongly decided. Our friend Yael Sosky, friend of this program, does a lot of the back-end work for the big talker that also carries this program. Good friend. He's been on this program before. We need to get him back. Um, said NatCons, national conservatives, like Josh Hammer proudly is, West Virginia v. Barnett was wrongly decided, meaning public school students can be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance. More generally, the state can compel speech. One of the most vital free speech cases for American liberty. What has happened to the right, that is Yael Osofsky on Twitter, uh, let me help you with this. It is not accidental that he brought up uh, West Virginia v. Barnett because this is a West Virginia bill. That case, um, our friend, West Virginia Esquires, who has also been on this program frequently, she actually wrote this up in Ordinary-Times.com. We'll link to it. You need to go back and read it. Um, among other things, you might be shocked that in the 40s, they did the Gadsden salute when they were trying to make everybody do it. Uh, you may not know what the Gadsden salute is. The reason they stopped doing the Gadsden salute was it was co-opted by these fellers over in Germany called the Nazis. And everybody, if you do it today, would just call it the Nazi salute, the straight out stiff arm salute. Back then it was called the Gadsden salute. Uh, be curious to see who would advocate to bring that part of the privilege of allegiance rules back. Nevertheless, um, there was a couple court cases. The way Supreme Court law works is you have case law and then it's refined and it's combined. And then you get a ruling, the ruling in Barnett, uh, West Virginia v. Barnett, um, the conclusion that West Virginia Esquire's rights, just for the background, the court then affirmed the district court decision overturning Gobbitus and a ruling undisturbed to this day prohibited by forcing, this was written in the 40s, by forcing a public entity of, of recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance. In a day and age in which one character's One's character and fealty are increasingly judged by his or her willingness to salute or otherwise venerate the flag, the pledge, or the anthem. Looking at you, NFL protesters, these words of Justice Jackson are worth pondering. West Virginia Square is writing. This is Justin Jack Justice Jackson's words in the opinion. Quote, 
to believe that patriotism will not flourish if patriotic ceremonies are not voluntarily and spontaneous instead of compulsory routine is to make an unflattering estimate of the appeal of our institutions to the free mind. This gets to the essence of this problem. There is no version of compulsory or performative patriotism that is free. It is forcing it on other people. It is telling other people they, can, they not only have to do what you tell them, but they need to think and feel what you tell them. And there is nothing that could be less patriotic than that. We live in a diverse society. We live in a pluralistic society. Telling people that they have to do the Pledge of Allegiance or have to love the national anthem or have to respect the flag. I know that all sounds good in your own head when you say it, but think about what you're really saying. You're saying people don't have a right to think and feel but they do. There is nothing more American than the right to your own mind and the right to your own feelings and the free speech protections that are enshrined in our Constitution. It's so important. It's the first thing they put in there that they have a right to express those thoughts and feelings free of being bothered by their government. Now, that doesn't get you free from the consequences, as we've talked about on this program. You can say whatever you want, but you better say what your rank can handle because you're not in a consequence free environment but you have a right to say it. And there is nothing worse than using the very freedoms that we have fought for so long and hard and at great cost to have in America than to use the thought of those very freedoms to compel speech and thought and feeling on a fellow American. Star-spangled tyranny is still tyranny, and we shouldn't tolerate it, and we shouldn't fall for these cheap pops of people who want to say you have to respect the anthem and you have to respect the flag. It insults all of our intelligence. It's un-American and it's wrong. And when people like Josh Hammer are proffering this stuff, it's for a reason. It's not because they want more freedom. It's because they want more people to only have the freedom to do what they think ought to be done. And that's not freedom at all. I love my country. I have done things for my country that I would do again if I had to, and I would have done more for my country if called upon. So don't question my patriotism unless you just want to sound silly. But I'm telling you right now, you never have a right to compel patriotism on anybody else. More Hurtel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Let's talk about Peter Thiel. Yay! Uh, you don't know who that is. Okay, well, Peter Thiel uh, is quickly becoming an important figure. Very online folks know him really well. Political figures know him really well because he's very politically active. He is politically active on the right, which is contradictory and contrarian, but we'll get into that in just a minute. He's quickly becoming a boogeyman for our progressive friends when they want to accuse people on the right of spending big money on various things, and they may have a little bit of a point here. We will see. But anyway, He's, a, he's getting more into politics. Uh, Washington Post, uh, written by Garrick Devank. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. And Natasha Taku. Uh, this week, Facebook announced billionaire investor Peter Thiel was stepping down from its board after more than 15 years. Um, the 54-year-old, whose contrarian and right-wing political views have made him one of the most controversial figures to emerge from Silicon Valley, will focus his time on helping pro-Trump candidates win in November's midterm elections. According to a person familiar with his thinking who spoke on the condition anonymity, excuse me, to discuss sensitive matters. 
Thiel has been participating in national politics for most of his life, helping create a conservative journal at Stanford University in the 80s before diving into tech investing and helping to find PayPal. By the way, I accept PayPal. Just throwing that out there. He used the money from PayPal sale to invest in other tech companies, becoming the first major outside investor in Facebook and seeing his wealth and influence rocket upwards as big tech's dominance grew over the past 20 years. In 2016, Thiel supported Donald Trump's presidential campaign and letters served on his transition team. And now he's playing an even more direct role in politics, funding the Senate campaign to two of his closest associates, J.D. Vance in Ohio. He dropped $10 million in seed money to that campaign that's going nowhere, but we'll cover that in a future time. And Blake Masters in Arizona. At the same time, he's still a force in tech investing and plays a major role in companies, including David Data Harvesting Firm Palantir. Palantir? I guess you say a P-A-L-A-N-T-I-R. Pronounce it how you want to. Where he serves as chairman. Straddling the worlds of Silicon Valley and conservative politics have made Thiel a uniquely influential and polarizing individual, though he's not as widely known as other well-documented political funders such as the Koch brothers. See, told you, got to be a boogeyman. That's likely to change as he dives deeper into U.S. politics. Thiel did not request comment. This piece goes on to detail his background, how he came to wealth and power, some of the other things he did, his connections. Uh, he's connected to uh, Josh Kushner, the brother of Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who has been internet famous for a couple of years now. What does all this mean? Uh, I want to back up and turn down the noise on this Peter Thiel thing for a minute. Um, the old model of left versus right when it comes to people like Peter Thiel is not particularly helpful and is not a good way to try to frame these issues. Yes, I understand he's donating to Donald Trump-backed candidates, and he has been involved with Donald Trump in politics. But let's remember something. Donald Trump isn't a traditional figure for the right either. Uh, even though he was a Republican, he gave gobs of money to uh, Democrats. He was very, until he decided to run for president, very, uh, very much more progressive or liberal on most things than what you would think a conservative or a Republican would be. He kind of broke the paradigm of left and right and what it meant. He even stood at CPAC and said, well, I guess whatever I am is conservative now. And he's right. A whole lot of people who use terminology like the right, like conservative, uh, those types of terms happily flocked to Donald Trump and threw away a lot of stuff they said they believed to do so. Now, Peter Thiel, can do whatever he wants. He has money. He has power. He wants to use it. Good for him. Welcome to America. That's how the game's played. But I think the left and right paradigm is wrong here. Yes, he's using the right, but what he really is is a modern-day oligarch. He craves power. He has invested and made his money through disruption. And folks like Peter Thiel think that they will gain more power through more disruption. The problem when it comes to politics is politics is not data. It's not tech. It's people. What are we always talking about on Herd Tell? Politics is people. Policy is people. America is people. This is a people thing. If you're going to be a disruptor with people, there's going to be collateral damage in people's lives. I'm very, very skeptical of pe people like Peter Thiel because I don't think they see people the way they ought to be seen. I think they see them as data points. They see them as a business model, and they see the great unwashed masses as something to control and a weapon to wield to get what they want. Now, I might be cynical. You might think I'm being too harsh, but we've got evidence of it. You can review this man's record. A lot of it's public. You can see what he's trying to do. 
So when him and his minions like Masters and the despicable J.D. Vance, who we will get to some other time, wants to talk about the oligarchs, no. Peter Thiel and his minions and the people he back, they are the oligarchs. And just because they're putting populist right-wing wordage and causes around them and saying that that's what they're for doesn't make them any less of oligarchs. And I really don't care which side the oligarch says he's on. I'm just going to go with being anti-oligarch. I think I'll probably be safe in the long run that way. So keep an eye on Peter Thiel. He's going to be a big-time player for a long time to come, probably. And just because they put buzzwords you like on there doesn't mean he's one of the good guys. More heard tell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thrilled at this one. This is going to be fun. Uh, been a t- one of the reasons I do this is I get to talk to all my Twitter buddies that I'd otherwise not get to talk to. I get to do that today. Uh, our buddy Jim Swift's on. He's a senior editor at The Bulwark. You might remember him from the Weekly Standard way back when, when I first started following him. He is a member of Twitter Supper Club in good standing and a defender of all things Ohio online. Jim, how are you, sir? Hey, you know, I'm a Browns fan, but go Bengals. Yeah, that's a hard team not to like. Just the way they play, Burrow's great. There's nothing unlikable about him. It's just a fun team to watch and a fun team to root for if you're a neutral like me. Well, and if you're married to a St. Louis and you hate Stan Kroenke in the Rams. Yeah, see, I didn't even think so, about that. Ad so I, I got yeah. I got double duty here. You know, Ohio loyalty and family loyalty to not to not like the Rams. So. Yeah, it should be a great game. Looking forward to it. All right. One thing we like to do is we don't just like to cover what's happening. We like to dig into why it's happening. That means understanding how things work. I'll put my hand up. I'm guilty of it. I know you're guilty of it because you write for them too. But we all love to bash on Congress, but we don't stop sometimes and understand how Congress actually works. And you have a piece out at the Bulwark about the congressional staffers. I don't think people realize because I didn't until I started doing the workup for this. You know, we have our Congress critters. We got 100 senators. There's something like 31,000 congressional staffers running around D.C. This is a massive amount of people in our nation's capital that's doing some really important work. That's a good sized city. That's a major university. That's a lot of people, Jim. It is. I mean, it's it's it has its own culture. It's it is. I mean, it, Congress has two zip codes. Uh, there's one for the House, 20510, and one for the, uh, excuse me, 20510 is the Senate, 20515 is the House. Um, and my editor, um, Adam Kuyper, the Bulwark, approached me about this. Um, I did not discover this, this, this Instagram account that I wrote about called Dear White Staffers. It had been written up a lot of places, and Adam worked on the Hill briefly, and I worked on the Hill for five years. And he goes, you know, Jim, I really think you should look into this account and write a story about it because you used to be a Hill staffer. I mean, I, I dump on Congress all day now and it's part of my job, but I also used to work for Congress critters, as you call them. Uh, I worked for a senator for four years. I worked for a House member from Kentucky for a year. Um, and uh, so I was I was really interested to write about this account. And I'm, I'm glad you liked the piece and happy to talk about it. Yeah. And let's just start there because you were kind of a different era because that was not really the social media and the media environment we live in now. And you talk about a little bit in the piece is one of the reasons we have awareness of these staffers now is they've all got their own social media. They all got their Instagram accounts. They got their own Twitter accounts. We've seen it happen where some staffs have pretty famously blown themselves up over the last few years uh, because of their uh, texting, tweeting, and or otherwise uh, getting their opinion out over top of their bosses, which never goes well in any field, especially politics. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, though, because you were there 
but this is kind of its own different beast now with the technology and the media environment we're in, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think in, I, in, my, in my piece, I wrote, it's a positive thing. I mean, look, social media is a double-edged sword. And I think anyone, you know, you can, you can pick any industry, you can pick any city of a story about somebody self-immolating on social media and ruining their career, right? It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter where you live. Um, you know, uh, one, once you, once you do something that becomes, you know, notable or, or becomes viral, uh, people will find out where you work. They'll complain to your employer. In some cases they'll get you quote unquote canceled, but in a lot of cases it's also justified, right? You know, I mean, one of the examples I linked to was there were these congressional staffers tweeting out hashtag D2R December to remember that they were just getting drunk on the taxpayer dime during daylight hours in their congressional offices. Now, I will I will readily admit to having consumed alcohol in a congressional office before the sun went down, um, but uh, you know it's it's not something you should be bragging about. It's not something you should be tweeting about. But like we also weren't drunk. I also worked for a member for from Kentucky, and he was the chair of the House uh, Bourbon Caucus. So um, you know it's a double edged sword. And back when I started working on the Hill, Twitter didn't really exist until like oh eight right. And I started in 07. I mean there was MySpace, there was Facebook. I remember Claire McCaskill, a Missouri senator down the hall, she was tweeting. She was one of the first senators to tweet, and it was horrifying. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now, I worked for a very straight-laced Presbyterian senator from Arizona. Um, We had a Twitter account. All it did was tweet out the press releases. But it became kind of performative over the years. And you see Ted Cruz, for example, these days. I mean, I don't think Ted Cruz wants to be a senator anymore. He just wants to tweet stuff from the Babylon Bee about Joe Rogan. I mean, does this really rise to the level that United States senators should be talking about what private companies do with their contracts? I mean, no, this this is not stuff that government needs to be involved in, but that's stuff that now if you work for a senator, you know, there's almost this expectation that you have to weigh in on it. But what I thought what was really interesting about this Dear White Staffers account was people who don't work on the Hill don't know what it's like. And now these anonymous people are taking uh, complaints that previously would have been shared on BlackBerry Messenger or in list servers and whatnot, uh, and they're airing it to the world. And uh, spoiler alert, Congress is not always a great place to work. No. And before we get into the actual issues, though, part of the problems with why it's not a great place to work is things like pay, things like staff size, things like how the intern programs are managed, things like this. This stuff is pretty hard set in stone because Congress writes these things in the law themselves and they haven't really been updated and or changed in a long time, have they? Right. I mean, uh, you know, this this account is pushing unionization. We, I'd, I'd like to push that argument to, to the side because what they're really doing is uh, highlighting some of these issues that people of color uh, deal with. The Hill is overwhelmingly white. And uh, it is easier to get a job there if you are uh, rich. And in which case, as I said, pretty much white. I mean, it, it, it is it, the whiteness of the hill is astounding um, because to become an intern, you, you know, if you're lucky to get paid. I mean, back in the day when I worked there, I was never an intern. Interns didn't get paid. They got college credit. Uh, now DC requires that interns get paid. And so they get stipends and all these other sorts of things, but DC is a very expensive place to live. And then if you're lucky enough to graduate from an internship into one of these staff assistant entry level jobs back in 2007, my first salary was 25 grand. Um, and you know, you fast forward here for 15 years, 
um, there are people who are still making 30 grand, which is, I mean, forget inflation. That's still nothing. Uh, inflation just exacerbates that. Um, and uh, it, it really is very hard unless you have parental support, you know, to help pay for your rent or, you know, uh, help you just cover the cost of living. Um, people are living pay, pay, paycheck to paycheck and sometimes have to go out and get other jobs uh, like at bars, um, you know, to, to be able to live uh, in, in the city. And it's, it's hard if you're not rich. And, uh, you know, the, the, the folks from the communities of color uh, have a harder time because they're statistically less likely to come from wealthy backgrounds than their white counterparts are. Yeah, talking to Jim Swift about Congress and the staffers. This is actually a problem, though, um, that is wider spread than just Congress, because we talk journalists have been covering this a lot, that the journalism is getting funneled down where you get a lot of people who are more upper income because they just can't afford those entry level jobs or those internships that they used to. We've seen it in higher education. We've seen it in other fields as well. We talk a lot about ideology and biases and politics. But there's some practical bias that comes into when you start narrowing down the field of staffers, and that's going to affect how lawmaking and the staff work gets done when you have that kind of sameness, don't you, just on a practical level? Yeah. And I mean, I, ideology does play a role. You know, I, I was talking to one of my um, former Hill staffer friends who's black for, for this story, and he never interned. But when he graduated from college, he went down and beat down all the doors of Democrats. And he told me that uh, the first person who gave him a job was the only person he worked for out of a sense of loyalty, um, you know, because he was so lucky that he got the job. Ideology does play that role. He was lucky he found a member that whose ideology he liked. I was lucky, you know, at the time that I, I, I applied on a whim for a Senate job, but for a state that I had never lived in and got this job because of my ideology was shared. Now, granted, I don't share much ideology with congressional Republicans much anymore um, because they're not interested in legislating or governing. Um, but when you think about it, it's not that, you know, there are 435 members of the House and Senate. And then if you add in the delegates and non-voting members, it's 441. Um, that doesn't mean that there are 441 offices in which you can work. It's actually a very narrow path um, because people who want to work on the Hill are ideological. They are motivated by their belief systems. Um, you know, uh, a, a super progressive leftist might not work for Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin, just like, you know, a conservative uh, kind of middle of the road blue dog Democrat is not going to go work for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, you have to look at it and then start narrowing it, narrowing it down. And then that means that there are even fewer jobs that you could potentially take. Um, and uh, I really like that this account is sort of shining a light on the bad members of Congress and how the ones who mistreat their staff, that used to be just like the whisper network, but now they're just calling out people publicly, and there's nothing that those legislators can do about it. The, t the turntables have turned, as Michael Scott said. Yeah. Uh, technology is a two-edged sword because everybody's got a voice. The good part of that is everybody's got a voice, and the bad part is Everybody's got a voice. Uh, we're talking to Jim Swift, senior editor to Bulwark, former staffer himself. He's written about the staffs. When we come back after a quick break, we're going to get into how those staffs actually work, how that's supposed to work in the legislative process, how that's not really happening a whole lot in our Congress right now. And that's why it's the root of a lot of our problems. We'll talk about that with Jim Swift. Hertel comes back right after this. Ah, uh, Hurt Tell Show. We're back with Jim Swift. We're talking congressional 
staffers and offices. All right, we we said staffers, but let's get into the nomenclature, how this works, because we know there's limits on how many staffers they can have. House offices are capped at like 18, but in reality, they usually have two or three, quote unquote, pro staffers. And then they have these other levels under them, interns, and then they have other people under that. Just kind of explain to people how a typical congressional office actually works the staff levels so that we're all on the same page here. Sure. Uh, congressional offices are constrained in, in part by the member's allowance, their annual budget for how much they can pay folks, right? Now, the federal government will pick up you know, the health insurance, they'll pick up their thrift savings plan, and eventually, if they serve long enough, their pension. But you, you, the first constraint is your top level of how much money you have to spend on things. And that includes envelopes, pens, computers, all this other kind of stuff. But salaries are, of course, the biggest driver because you're not paying rent for your congressional office. Um, you do have district offices. And depending on how gerrymandered or crazy your district is, you could have one or two district offices or you could have four. And, you know, those things could be uh, in a nice strip mall or it could basically almost be like a trailer. I mean, some members of Congress even have RVs for mobile offices that they pay for. Um, but when it comes to your Washington staff, like a House member might have eight or nine or 10 uh, people on their personal office staff. Um, because you don't get the bigger offices until you've been there a long time. And even when you get the bigger offices, they're not that much bigger. Um, you know, my, my boss was middle of the road, a member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Our office was in Longworth. It was basically three big rooms. We had a room where the chief of staff and the scheduler were, and that's where people would wait. We had the member of Congress's office in the middle, and then we had, you know, the bullpen in the back where me and the LCs, the legislative correspondents, and the fellow legislative assistants who were kind of the mid-senior level policy people had offices. Uh, and there's a little bathroom in there, but these things aren't huge. Now, senators uh, can have uh, upwards of, you know, like 20, 25 people on staff um, because they represent entire states. And senators tend to get um, a, a bigger budget than your, your House member does because they represent a lot more people. Um, I mean, think of Dianne Feinstein, a California senator, uh, and compare uh, what she might need to represent California to Jack Reed, uh, senator from Rhode Island, which is a very small state. Um, you know, uh, they, they don't tend to have as many staffers there. And Senate staff tend to get paid a little bit better uh, than House staff do, but at the lower rungs, not not by very much. Uh, it's not like you're you know making it rain there. Um, and so uh, a lot of it depends on what state or district you represent and how it's drawn and what its needs are. Um, but there are constraints on office space and there are constraints on your budget. And that all ends up kind of trickling down to how much people get paid. And like I said in my piece, if you want to be a stick in the mud and complain, there are literally 100 people who are willing to take your job the following day and not complain. Yeah. And among other things, you are a D.C. area liver dweller, however you want to phrase that. This is a very expensive city for people that aren't making a whole lot of money to try to get buy in. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you move here. I mean, I remember when I moved here, I had to live in somebody's basement. Now, I lived with my buddy for a couple of days until I found a place on Craigslist. And I lived in one of these Lego brick uh, houses from the world post pre-World War II era in Alexandria. I lived in someone's basement that I paid $850 a month for. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to take a day off until we got a holiday. And so I literally slept on the floor with a couple of things I bought at Ikea for two months. 
um, until I could get my stuff out of storage and properly move in um, because I didn't want to live with roommates in D.C. Part of that was because I also had a bunch of guns and you couldn't have guns in D.C. really uh, at the time until the Heller decision um, because I'm from the Midwest and I got guns. But yeah, no, it's it's just the housing situation really is a, is a huge problem. And, you know, the Dear White Staffers account pointed out that, you know, one staffer lived in Section 8 housing in very unsafe areas. D.C. has a big problem with crime. I mean, a girl I worked with lived in a nice place, like four blocks from the Capitol. And one night she was trying to get into her apartment and she got mugged with a guy, for, you know, with a brick, you know, and uh, she had to go to the hospital. Um, you know, it's uh not a lot of fun to have to deal with those things for like 30 grand a year. Um, and uh, that's why a lot of people that Dear White Staffers' profile just said, I got out of the hill. I mean, everyone has a shelf life is how long you can do it. And um, I, I, I really like what they're bringing up because it's a conversation I think we need to have, not just uh, for the minority community, I mean, especially for them, but um, you know, there, there are lots of uh, lower middle-class white folks who want to work on the hill too, um, and really the only people who have it easy on the Hill are rich kids. Yeah. Talking to our friend, Jim Swift. All right. Here's the nut of this whole thing though. We, we love to bash on our members of Congress and senators. Uh, that's kind of the gig, but, uh, we also need them to do the job they're sent on a practical level. If they are not getting quality staff, how much exponentially harder does it make an already almost impossible job for them to do what they're supposed to be doing that they're elected to do when they can't get decent staffers because of the living conditions, the wages, whatever it may be, it don't matter if they're not getting good quality people and they're just getting, you know, the people that can afford to be there is kind of a lark thing. That's bad for the country. Yeah. I mean, you should, you should want the best folks. And, you know, just because, working on the hill benefits the rich doesn't mean that these kids are the best. I've worked with a ton of horrible rich kids. I mean, I don't want to sound like Herman Bloom from Rushmore, you know, take dead aim on the rich boys. Um, We should want socioeconomic and uh, racial diversity uh, in the legislative branch that helps, you know, as one third of our country's government. We should want those perspectives. I mean, before J.D. Vance, uh, senatorial candidate in Ohio, kind of went insane and went and turned to you know, Mr. Yale, uh, VC funding, uh, poser, you know, kind of MAGA type. He had an inspiring story of, of, of what he grew up in. And you want the kind of people like J.D. Vance uh, describes his youth as to try and have a shot at running uh, and working in government. Um, you see what he's kind of had to become the monster as a candidate. And it's sad. I mean, or you think of West Virginia, October Sky, and, and, and those stories of inspiration. You you want those stories, and they do exist in Congress. Um, but uh, you know, for every one of those stories, you have ten people. It's like my dad's a doctor, my dad's a lawyer. You know, my my dad's an exec, or my mom, you know, is a high powered judge or something. And money's no object, and they just you know can float it. And that's why you have this sort of uh, glut of rich kids. Um, I'm not, I was one of them. I mean, I'm not going to deny that um, growing up, I, 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 I am one of the rich kids of which I speak. I had it easy. I mean, my parents weren't floating me money, but I had it easier because I didn't have student loan payments. I didn't have all of these other obligations. I was able to make it on my own because my parents made it easy for me to get to that point, whereas other kids didn't have that opportunity. Um, and so maybe I wrote it from, you know, a, a sense of self-guilt, uh, you know, in a way. 
Um, but uh, it's, it's its own education and we're denying it to a lot of people. And I think that's the importance of this account um, is that um, there are problems on the Hill that are systemic, uh, that don't differ from the ones that we deal with in society every day, but uh, there are ones that you only know about if you've ever worked there. Uh, it's sort of like joining a fraternity. You, you have to, you won't know about those unless you've been on the inside. Yeah. We're talking to Jim Swift, his piece out on uh, Hill staffers, dear white people. It's time we listened in the bulwark uh, to your point, both of West Virginia's sitting senators, since you brought them up, both are from dynastic political families, the Moore family, uh, Shelley Moore capital, no offense to either one of them. It just is what it is. Shelley Moore capital. Her father was, um, you guys had Jay Rockefeller. We had Jay. Well, to his credit, though, I give him a pass because he carpet bagged in. But when you stay 40 years, I think that term no longer applies. So I give Jay, I give him credit. He stuck it out. Of course, uh, folks don't know if you're a political historian person, if you do not know who a James Manchin is, you are missing a treat. That is uh, Joe Manchin's uncle, one of the great political figures in the history of America. Just trust me, go read up on him. Fabulous character. Uh, interesting guy. But to your point, uh, both West Virginia sitting senators are dynastic. All right. In your piece, how do we fix this? Uh, the people from the account are pushing for unionization. That's its own beast on a couple of levels. You talked about working on the college pipeline, which is kind of what I think they originally designed staffers to be maybe trying to get back to that. What do you think one of the fixes here on a practical level would be for the staffers? So my problem with unionization is not that I'm a conservative who is skeptic about unions, though that is true. What I write in the piece is the only offices that are likely to unionize are the offices that probably need the benefits of unionization the least. There are, and I was talking with a former Democratic staffer who worked for Harry Reid, and I was just like, can you imagine some of these really bad Democrats like Sheila Jackson Lee? I'm like, can you imagine if Sheila Jackson Lee from Congresswoman from Texas, if her office tried to unionize and she's like notoriously a bad boss? And uh, we just kind of got a laugh out of that. And so it's like, yeah, the squad's offices would unionize immediately. But, you know, some of these kind of crazier Democrats probably wouldn't. I'm not sure you'd see much unionization on the right, because historically, the right is not very supportive of unions. The best fix, and I, I like what the, the Black Staffers Associations um, came up with. Uh, I don't like the idea of a Rooney Rule uh, 2.0, which is one of these suggestions that, you know, it seems like tokenism. And we have, we've seen how the NFL has dealt with the Rooney Rule. I mean, good, well intended, but I mean, give, give me a break. Um, I like this idea of a pipeline from historically Black colleges and universities um, may not help Republicans as much because I, I'm not sure Howard has a turning point USA chapter um, <laughs> there. Um, but one of the things that I think that probably stands a greater chance of success is Congress gets to make its own rules. Senate can make its rules. The House gets to make its own rules. And that's under the Constitution. Rather than unionization, I think that these folks should push their leadership uh, to come up with uh, minimum living wages for staff positions. Now, of course, Congress being Congress, they'll find ways around it. But there should be a figure that we can all agree upon that a entry-level staff assistant should make, that a legislative correspondent, these are people who look at your emails and the letters you write and the phone calls you make asking what your, posi- your boss's position is. These are the people who write those and take meetings with constituents. That stands, I think, a much better chance of success at improving the lives of these young folks fresh out of college. Um, not everyone has it bad, not even, you know, you know, 
rich kids aside, some offices are really great and care about making sure that people can make a living. Others aren't. Um, unionization is only going to help those that are already doing pretty well um, office-wise. Uh, so I think this sort of coming up with living wage thresholds for staff positions is something that, the, uh, you know, more so the House than probably the Senate can consider, um, you know, to, to, uh, to help people want to stay and move up uh, the rungs on the ladder uh, in, in, in Congress. Yeah. Jim Swift, we appreciate the time talking about how the Congress actually works when we're throwing bricks at the TV. We at least understand there's some staffers behind the scenes that are working really hard to get things done. Uh, let folks know what you've been doing on your social media. Uh, you are got a great newsletter that I read every day. Uh, always has some good little tidbits in it, although it is way too uh, homerish on Ohio matters, but we'll forgive you that one. Let folks know sure. where they follow you on social media and what you got going on at the ballpark and other places. Yeah, sure. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Jim Swift DC, um, and I I have a newsletter that comes out every weekday at the Bulwark. It's the only free one that we have. That's always free. Called Overtime. I highlight all the stuff we do at the Bulwark, which you know we're conservative or Republican, never Trumpers. Uh, so you know we're we're out in our own little wilderness out there. Um, I highlight all of our stories and our podcasts and things that we do there. And then uh, I have a little section. It's a little potpourri section of interesting things. Um, that I that I've read around the internet that I think you should read. Um, so it doesn't cost anything. Uh, head over to thebulwark.com. You can uh, click on uh, subscribe, and uh, you can you can get it uh, for free. Uh, otherwise, we're ten bucks a month, and we have a bunch of uh, interesting stuff. But um, you know, let let me be your uh, your your guide into what we do. And if you like what we do, uh, we've got more of it for you. Yeah. My friend, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your recipes on Twitter Supper Club. And uh, for one week only, I'll be with you. I think I'm going to pull for the Bengals. Jim Swift, appreciate you, my friend. Good stuff on the piece. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. So glad you're with us, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. However you're watching or listening, we are sure glad that you're spending a little time with us. This is an utterly shocking story. I just want to touch on it. You can read it yourself um, over at Reason. Uh, this mom, a single mom who has multiple children, let her 14-year-old babysit the other kids and wound up in handcuffs. Uh, Lenore Chizeski over at Reason has this story. Please do read it for yourself. Just the top part of it, when COVID-19 shut down her children's daycare in May of 2020, Melissa Anderson had to go to work. She had her 14-year-old daughter, Lindley, to babysit the four younger siblings. Lindley was engaged to remote learning when her youngest brother, four-year-old Thaddeus, spied his friends outside and went over to play with them. It was about 10 or 15 minutes before he realized he was missing. She guessed that he must be at his friend's house, went to fetch him. In the meantime, the friend's mom had called the police. Now, Henderson, a single mom in Blairsville, Georgia, is facing criminal reckless conduct charges for letting her 14-year-old babysit. The charges carry a maximum penalty of one year in prison and fine of $1,000. The arresting officer, Deputy Sheriff Mark Pelodi, I think is how you pronounce it. I hope so. Wrote in his report that anything terrible could have happened to Thaddeus, including being kidnapped, run over, or, quote, bitten by a venomous snake. Seriously. Uh, when Henderson protested that the kid was only gone a few minutes, Pelote responded that a few minutes was all the time a venomous snake needed. The case is being dragged on for almost two years now. This is back to reason. Uh, while Henderson's lawyer, David 
The Lugas argues that the charging of a mom for a normal parenting decision was declared unconstitutional by the Georgia Supreme Court in 1997. In that case, a mom had let her 11-year-old babysit a younger sibling who had died in a tragic accident. Even then, the court ruled it was arbitrary and subjective to call the mom's decision reckless. What's more, as the Luga points out, Georgia's own child protective guidelines say kids can babysit at the age of 13. We'll see how this goes. If it goes to court, I suspect it'll be dismissed. I don't know. Maybe there's more to the story than what we're being told, but there's two parts of this that trouble me the most. One is the friend thinking that the child being out was reason to call the police instead of just taking it up with the parent. Two is the officer that involved writing this ridiculous report. I get that you're the cop. I get that you show up. I get it's your job. But come on, man, you don't have to write fan fiction on your report. Find out what happened. Uh, the, the, kid, the teenager in charge turned away for a minute. All right. Maybe find out. Call the parent. Sit there until the parent comes back. There's about a dozen ways to handle that better. You chose the one way that was not better. We talk about things like criminal justice reform. Not making criminals where they don't belong to be criminals is a good, easy place to start. And we'll be back with more Hertel right after this. I heard tell show, you know, we always try to end on a good note or a happier note. Here's a fun one out of Port St. Lucie, Florida. Man's best friend is being credited with saving its owner's life during a scare in Port St. Lucie. The Port St. Lucie Police Department said 81-year-old Harry Smith, who uses an electric wheelchair, was walking his dog near a pond when the wheelchair lost traction, causing him to slide and flip into the lake. I tried to back around to get out of it and went straight back instead and right down the embankment and dumped me right in the water. Smith said Smith, who couldn't swim and struggled to stay afloat, Started screaming for help, and that's when Smith's dog, Sarah Jane, realized its owner was in trouble and desperately needed help. The dog started barking frantically, trying to get everyone's attention. Sarah Jane was able to get the attention of Edward Schuschling and friend Jacob. The two were working across the street. When we looked over there, the dog was splashing in the water, so we both ran over there, and I jumped in the water. They were able to flag down a Port St. Lucie police officer who happened to be in the area. Only his head was above the water. The wheelchair was in the water. It was dragging him down. Shuling, Jacob, and the officer jumped in, working together, pulled Smith up to the bank. All of them jumped into action, all thanks to Sarah Jane. He received medical attention at the scene and was cleared to return home because Smith's wheelchair was damaged. The officer and St. Lucie County firefighters pushed him home. We are thankful for Mr. Smith's dog and the two bystanders that helped save his life, the police department said. And so the saying remains true. A man's best friend is his dog. Smith said he was sure that Sarah Jane was thank- was saving his life. I gave her a treat. I love her. I always have, and I always will. That'll do it for her to tell. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we've been having really strong guests. We've been having strong numbers. That's all thanks to you. Uh, we appreciate you. If you want to reach out to us directly, we would love to hear from you. We've already done segments and stories based off of your feedback. We'd be happy to do so. Let us know, uh, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Send us an email at herdtellshow on the Twitter. You can get a hold of us there. You can leave comments, uh, the YouTube page, all of the podcasting platforms, the Facebook page, Big Talker FM, that's also streaming us and have us on their Facebook page. However you want to reach out to us, my uh, Twitter is down there, four for the fire at the twitter.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, keep your bearing, be nice but we might even put it on the show. Somebody you want us to talk to, somebody you think we're not covering, uh, like the VA story. We covered it. 
somebody that listens that's a mutual friend said, hey, do you want to have the author on the show talk about it? Facilitated that. And we had her on the show. Uh, Ashley Merriman, great episode. Things like that is because this is a partnership. So every weekday, the weekday show, long form podcast on the weekends, the good talks every afternoon comes out. That's just the interview segments. Make sure you seek them out on the podcasting platforms and the YouTube. They're on a handy dandy playlist. Make sure you like and subscribe to that. So wherever you and yours are, till we talk to you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell to finish out the week on a Friday. Y'all be well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.